Welcome back to The Landscape, your show about America's public lands. I'm your co-host, Kate Gretzinger, in Salt Lake City, where I think it's safe to say spring has finally sprung. I'm Aaron Weiss in Denver, enjoying a beautiful day. I, I was back in New York last weekend, just getting poured on all weekend long, so it is really nice to come back to some beautiful 70-degree spring weather around here. Uh, today, we've got some legal and political experts with us to talk about a new, uh, unfortunately, bipartisan bill that would open up public lands to all kinds of abuse by the mining industry. Kate, you and I were just talking about this uh, after we, we wrapped up the interview, and I'm sitting there thinking, is it actually that bad? And then I pull up the bill text and like, oh, no, no, it, it's it's actually that bad and it's kind of stunningly bad the more you you read and realize what the implications of this bill are so uh looking forward to that conversation before we get to that though kate uh, let's do the news so sticking with the legislative theme of this episode let's talk about the shenanigans going on in the u.s house the house passed a terrible bill tying oil and gas handouts to legislation to raise the u.s debt ceiling now, you may or may not have heard that Democrats and Republicans are duking it out right now over the debt ceiling. Basically, they have to pass something that increases it or all kinds of bad things will happen to the federal government's finances. But instead of passing a clean bill to raise the ceiling, the House tacked their priority legislation, known as House Bill 1, onto the debt ceiling bill. This new legislation overturns almost all of the federal oil and gas leasing reforms implemented by the Inflation Reduction Act. It also requires the feds to hold quarterly lease sales in several Western states, and it removes the Interior Secretary's authority to determine which lands are eligible for oil and gas leasing. Now, there's basically no chance this bill will become law. It's dead on arrival in the Senate. But it does reveal that the House is more interested in giving handouts to the oil and gas industry than legislating in the best interest of the American people. And that's something we'll keep an eye on. And I think the the bigger point here is that with this one-month timetable, basically, barreling towards uh, America hitting the debt limit, all sorts of things could suddenly end up on the table that weren't before as Republicans and Democrats try to hammer out some sort of deal. So I think it's a a very fraught month ahead of us, uh, not knowing what could suddenly come into play uh, as Congress tries to address the debt ceiling. Allie Henderson is a senior attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity, where her work is focused on resisting attacks on public lands. Allie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. And Blaine Miller-McFeely is a senior legislative representative at Earth Justice, where he advocates for communities and the environment in Congress. Blaine, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thank you so much. So we're here today to talk about a really concerning piece of legislation that was introduced by Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a Democrat from Nevada, and co-sponsored by Senator Jim Risch, a Republican from Idaho. Now, Cortez Masto succeeded Nevada Senator Harry Reid, who was famously friendly to mining, and Cortez Masto seems to be carrying that torch. She received $62,000 from the mining industry during the last election cycle, and that money seems to be paying off. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of the bill during our interview, but for now, just know that it would greatly expand mining companies' rights to dump waste on public lands adjacent to their mines, and it could also have some really bad unintended consequences. So, Ali, let's go to you. What prompted Cortez Masto to file this bill now? Yeah, well, I think uh, what prompted her to take action were two 
recent decisions out of the District Court of Nevada involving two proposed mines in the state. Um, but those two decisions are based off of a decision that came out of the Ninth Circuit just about a year or so ago. So I'll start with that decision first. Um, so this Ninth Circuit decision was involving the Santa Rita Mountains down in southern Arizona, where a proposed copper mine was slated to dump uh, billions of tons of toxic waste on public lands. And what the company was proposing to do was to dump all that waste on these mining claims on the National Forest. So the District Court of Arizona and then the Ninth Circuit upheld that the mining company actually didn't have a right to use those lands to dump that waste because to have a right under the mining law for permanent use and occupancy, you have to have discovered a valuable mineral deposit. And that wasn't the case here. In fact, there is no record in the, no evidence in the record, pardon me, to show that there was a valuable mineral deposit discovered on these lands. So these two latest decisions that came out of Nevada involved similar facts. Um, so the first was involving Thacker Pass, um, which there the court looked to the plain language of Section 22 of the mining law, looked to the decision from Rosemont and said, guess what? I'm looking at these mining claims and there's not, uh, there, there hasn't been a discovery of a valuable mineral deposit. You don't have a right to this permanent occupation for your waste dumps. The last decision here um, was involving a proposed mine on Mount Hope, also in Nevada, where again, the court made the same finding and looked again to what Rosemont pointed out as the plain language in 1872, um, looked to the decision involving Thacker Pass as well, and said, again, here where you're looking to dump all of your waste is not a valuable mining claim. There's no discovery of a valuable mineral deposit you don't have a right to permanent occupation. Awesome. So her bill is sort of um, addressing that in, in seeking to uh, gain those rights for the mining industry, basically. Um, Blaine, do you have any thoughts on the timing of this uh, or on this bill in terms of the political timing and sort of the Congress it's, it's coming into? Sure. So, you know, I, just like Ali, I would say that the mining industry is pushed for this right now because they didn't like the fact that the court was enforcing longstanding law and they wanted to have an easier, you know, an even easier time. We were under a 150 year old mining law, but an easier, even uh, even easier time lining their pockets under this this permissive mining law. And I think the senator herself is is fresh off a difficult electoral win in a state dominated by mining interests. It's it's clear that she is listening to the mining industry. But I think it's also clear that the industry itself is not being honest about what her legislation would actually do or what they asked her, her to do. There are some serious unintended consequences, including blocking clean energy projects like solar or wind on public lands, things that the senator supports herself and it, it is a very strong advocate for. And so that's why we're calling this the Dirty Mining Trumps All Other Uses Act, because it would prioritize dirty mining projects over all other uses of our public lands. And I think this is a time in which the, the mining industry is really pushing for to open up more unfettered mining and more access to our public lands for them to control our public lands. And they're using the clean energy transition as the excuse to do that. But And they feel like they have an, an opportunity 
to to push for this in a way that um, has not been seen before because the the um, the profit margin is bigger, the the conversation is more leaning in their direction, and all of those sorts of things on top of where this this uh, case these cases have have really landed lately. So, Ali, if you could walk us through what changed, because as you noted, this is a ruling in the Rosemont case based on a plain reading of a 150-year-old law, and obviously that plain reading of the law took Rosemont and and the, the mining company by surprise. Had no one ever actually just gone in and said, hang on, the law says this, that you, you have to have a, a valuable mining claim there. Had that never actually made it through the courts in 150 years? Well, so there had, there you know, there's been a century of precedent that a valid mining claim is tied to discovery of a valuable mineral deposit. The difference here was that that was getting applied in the context of modern mining needing thousands of acres to dump their billions of tons of toxic waste on public land. And that's drastically different, right, than what type of mining we were looking at in the 1800s when the 1872 mining law was passed. Um, Granted, the pick and axe mining of the 1800s and early 1900s has still had a lot of toxic um, legacy left over um, that we're still cleaning up to this day. Um, but it was still so much different when we're talking about the footprints and just the sheer amount of acreage of public lands that are now having to be used for modern mining. And basically that was a scenario that wasn't even envisioned in 1872. So therefore the law didn't address it. Yeah, I think that's completely fair to conclude. And the Ninth Circuit in issuing their decision even points to that, um, that, you know, the, the potential that the mining law might not fully account for what modern mining looks like when and the amount of acreage it needs isn't necessarily a surprise. I mean, we're, we are dealing with a 151-year-old law after all. Right. And we'll jump in um, to a discussion of mining reform at the end here. But um, before we get to that, um, Ali, what are some of, I mean, well, excuse me, Ali, you've mentioned the obvious implications of this bill that companies would be able to dump their mine waste on our public lands without proving that there are minerals on those lands. Um, What are the less obvious implications of this bill that could have impacts on public lands? Yeah, I think one, uh, one very, um, significant impact is that this really opens up for rampant abuse and I think weaponization of the law. So, um, and, and we don't have to go very far for this stretch either. Um, so as drastic as that sounds, um, it's, it's really not, not a, a, a too, too much of a bridge for us to cross here. Um, so the, the key is by removing that valuable mineral deposit, what the law would do if it was passed is it allows anyone to go out place four stakes in the ground to mark their mining claim, send in a nominal fee to BLM, and then pay a very nominal, again, annual maintenance fee, and they would have a a valid mining claim. No discovery of valuable mineral deposit right would be required. Now, the the issue with that is that now you have a property interest on public lands that is completely unfettered 
from any sort of um, boundary or sort of sideboard to better protect other types of uses or values on public lands. Uh, so here, I, you know, I think this is a really good example that I want to walk through. Um, so back in the early 1900s, future Senator Cameron for Arizona uh, went out and blanketed parts of the Bright Angel Trail that some of your listeners are probably familiar with, with mining claims. And he was charging a fee or a toll for people to pass through to get down to the banks of the Colorado River. And uh, what happened was the government said, well, hey, what are you doing? You don't have a value, like you don't have a valid mining claim. There's no discovery of a valuable mineral deposit. You can't be excluding other uses or, you know, charging fees for people to cross your invalid mining claim. And as a result, he was booted out. And, you know, we now have the Grand Canyon National Park um, as it's protected. And, you know, if this law, however, had been on the books then, there would have been no way to exclude that type of nefarious and very um, exploitive practice of public lands. So when I'm thinking about kind of what this then looks like, you know, if this portable bill were to pass, you know, I think your favorite mountain biking trail, your favorite hiking trail, and any areas that are not currently protected from mining claims could be on the chopping block. You might be excluded from having access. You could be have to pay to access it, which is absurd because it goes against the entire intent and purpose of the mining law, which is that you're looking at valuable mineral deposits. So just to restate, um, the, the thing that this bill changes is that you no longer have to validate your mining claim by, by proving that there's minerals there. Um, you just have it by, by going out and staking it and paying your fees. You have the right now. Yes, that's all you'd have to do. Um, and so I think it's really ripe for um, abuse because there's nothing to prevent you, anybody or any company from going out anywhere and staking those types of claims. And as Blaine had mentioned too, you know, there's a concern that you could see that happening where there's maybe other things proposed on public land and people coming in, staking a claim, and then, you know, extracting a high fee to walk away. Hmm. Extorting, <laughs> yeah. Extortion, basically. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Extortion. Yeah. And I would say it, extortion is one option, but even just blocking a, a proposed clean energy project because somebody doesn't like it in their backyard is a real possibility. So sometimes, right, a, a group will say, oh, I don't like that, that wind farm in my view shed, which is in, on public lands. The, the moment before that is sort of finalized, you could go out and put four stakes in the ground and pay that nominal fee, 150 bucks, just and, and, and block it forever, that, that wind project. And I think it's important to, to remember that this clean energy side of things, because this context of this, this discussion around the, the, the minerals is so rooted in the um, conversation about what minerals are needed for a clean energy transition. And so if you, you're allowing mining companies to block clean energy projects, that is not moving our country towards electrification or decarbonization. And, and they could very easily do that by, and it's not just mining companies, it basically could be any 
person could just walk out, put four stakes in the ground to, to say, we don't want that near our community. We don't want that anywhere. Um, so I think a useful way to, to think about this bill, too, is like, what would it do in application? Is it really is a de facto privatization of public lands. So, sure, the federal government retains the title to the lands, but because of the way that it works, where somebody can just go out, place those four stakes in the ground, send in a nominal fee to BLM, and then have the right to permanently use and occupy that land, it essentially is making it private. People can exclude other uses. People can charge fees. You know, we ran through the parade of horribles. That really is not a far stretch when you look at what this language would do because it removes that valuable mineral deposit heart of the mining law. So, you know, short and sweet is taking the public out of public lands. Obviously, this bill uh, focused on mining, but it could have all these other terrible implications if it passes. Um, Do you think there's a way to write it just for mining? Do you think that that's what we might see come out in the future is a bill where they kind of correct for this, these um, unintended consequences? Well, I think to, to do that, you need something like the valuable mineral deposit touchstone, right? Like you would have to have something like that in there. And it frankly doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to remove that if the whole point is it's a mining law where we're talking about valuable minerals. Um, maybe there's another way that they could think about it, but you know, it really boils down to you have to have that touch a touchstone that's going to provide protections for other uses and to guard against abuse. Um, and this bill doesn't do that. It obliterates that. So walk me through the fallout here politically. It certainly sounds like Senator Cortez Masto, or at least her office was maybe a bit surprised by the amount of pushback on just how, I guess for lack of a better word, insane this bill is, uh, is there any chance it goes anywhere or on the flip side, is there any chance this opens the door to a conversation of what actually fixing and reforming the 1872 mining law would look like? So I would say, unfortunately, because of the the millions of dollars that the mining industry spends on lobbying every year, there's a real threat for it to happen. So, I mean, just to, to point out, how big of a of a presence they are and how much they're spending in 2000 in last year in 2022 alone the mining industry spent over 22 million dollars on lobbying and we're unfortunately also seeing concerning statements from democratic allies in our fight that are in in with us on our fight to tackle the climate crisis they bought into this mining industry talking point these mining industry talking points that more unfettered and toxic mining will get us to the clean energy transition in a quick and safe way, that it's the only answer, it's the silver bullet. And it seems that they're unfortunately willing to look past the well-documented environmental record of mining companies, the fact that this is a 150-year-old mining law, and the fact that mining companies have had such drastic impacts on the health and well-being of our communities. Right? You asked this question of, like, does it open open the opportunity for for good reform or for for reform as a whole. I think (laughs) considering the mining law is over 150 years old and was signed by Ulysses S. Grant, a a Civil War general, um, 
by the way, to entice white Americans to kick indigenous peoples off their land as they moved west. It's long past time for us to reform our mining law. We needed to reform it to protect communities, lands, and waters. However, the Dirty Mining Trumps All Other Uses Act should not be the place to start that conversation. Instead, we need to be starting from a place of ensuring communities have a voice regarding what happens in their backyards and making sure that as we transition to a clean energy economy, which does need some minerals, it doesn't come at the cost of harming people or the environment. Listen, we can't avoid all mining. We need it as part of our solution to build out the clean energy technology that, we're, we, that we are all working for decarbonization. But the basis of re reform for the mining laws that the, that mining occurs under should be ensuring that any mining that occurs does not repeat the wrongs of the oil and gas industry, the wrongs of the past. We have to include protections for special places like the Grand Canyon that Ali was just talking about. We have to make sure communities and sacred sites are protected, like the Wall of High's uh, Sacred Spring in Arizona, the Wallapai tribe, which is being threatened right now by lithium exploration. Basically, what it comes down to is if this conversation is opening around mining reform, which desperately needs to happen, it has to begin from a place that says we can't move our sacrifice zones where the people bear the brunt of, their, of the impact of our energy needs from oil and gas impacted communities to mining impacted communities. And I can tell you right now that I am ready to have that conversation. We need to have that conversation to protect our communities and protect our sacred sites, but it cannot start from a place where we're moving to basically give the mining industry everything that they want and control over everything. I want to ask about one of the talking points, one of the arguments we hear in the the conversation around renewables and mining and EV batteries in particular, which is that we should be extracting the lithium and these other minerals here in the U.S. because that process, that mining process, the environmental safeguards here are stronger and cleaner than anywhere else in the world. Uh, this is to either of you. Is that true? Is it kind of true? Is it just total BS? I would say that the answer to that is is exactly what we were just talking about. The 150-year-old, 151-year-old mining law is has no environmental standards in it. So how can a law that has no environmental standards in it protect communities and protect indigenous communities? This is not to say that um, that in comparison to the rest of the world, we are are so much better or, or so much worse. We need to raise our bar here at home in order to raise the bar around the world. It is not an either or. You can't even find all the minerals we need for EVs or, or the clean energy transition here domestically. We have to work with our allies to raise the bar to make sure that communities are protected, that workers' rights are protected, that the environment is protected. And there are lots of ways to do that by setting standards, by um, trade agreements and, and import agreements and all of those sorts of things. But we have to start by updating our own mining law and not sacrificing our own communities like the indigenous communities who are at the forefront of being um, being harmed. There's some communities that are still 
not able to drink their own groundwater because of abandoned mines from the last century. And the mining industry still operates under the same law that they did then. And they really haven't changed their, their technology very much to actually more be more environmentally sound. So we have to, as we transition to clean energy, we have to update our mining laws and regulations to do that. We can push them to, to clean up, to actually have better environmental standards, and when where they mine should not be in special or sacred places. Yeah, I think it, it's also helpful for us to kind of think about like what is the ground the ground right now, and uh, when when we're talking about the pollution and that comes from hard rock mining. Um, according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the mining industry is the single largest source of toxic waste generation in the U.S. This is a first place that the mining industry gets pretty much every year <laughs> in recent history. Um, hard rock mines have contaminated an estimated 40% of headwaters in the Western watersheds. That again is a, a fact from EPA. Um, the Forest Service has estimated that the cleanup costs for Forest Service lands alone is more than $6 billion from toxicity and pollution from hard rock mining. The Forest Service has stopped even adjusting that figure upwards because they have said that there's no way they're going to get all that funding from Congress to clean it up. So why are we going to spend agency resources on updating our cleanup estimate? And unlike oil and gas and coal industries, metal mining companies pay nothing to extract public-owned minerals from public lands. They don't have any royalties. They're not contributing to any sort of fund to clean up the mess that they've left across our public lands and have stuck communities with. Um, so, you know, we really do need to have significant changes if we're not going to end up having and repeating the exact same mistakes and harms that we did in the 1900s and that we did even in the early part of this century. I mean, it's long due that we modernize the law so we're protecting public lands, water, sacred sites, and communities. And I really think it's, um, you know, it's a false dual duality to think that we cannot do that. It's such a lack of creativity <laughs> to actually also just address that we can learn from the mis from mistakes of the past and we can evolve and move forward with practices in a way that are going to leave future generations with better climate, better lands, and better water. Ali, I want to ask you one more question here. Um, and Blaine, feel free to jump in if you have thoughts on this. Um, obviously, moving mining reform in the right direction in this Congress will be hard. It's currently moving in the wrong direction. Um, is there anything the president can do or the Interior Department can do in the meantime um, when it comes to mining reform and implementing the kinds of changes you've both mentioned? Yes. So um, the center for Biological Diversity, Earth Justice, um, Nine Tribes and Indigenous Organizations, as well as a number of other environmental organizations, um, petitioned the Biden administration in September 2021 to improve and update the Department of Interior's um, regulations for hard rock mining. And we're asking for revisions that are fully within the authority of DOI to make that would provide some significant protections and move mining law um, 
implementation on the ground and to a more uh, to a better place where it's more modern, where we're better protecting resources and other values um, in a way that, you know, we're learning from those mistakes of the past. And right now, and, and Blaine will we'll jump in in a second here, um, but right now we are waiting to get a report from the interagency working group that was looking specifically at hard rock mining and what can be done to result in reforms and improvements. And um, we're hoping that we're going to see some of what we asked for in that petition um, moving forward. Yeah, just to, to add on here, I think we're, we're very excited. We're patiently waiting, um, maybe not so patiently waiting for these interagency working group recommendations to come out, which we hope will be very soon. Um, you know, we, as Ali said, we view that as, an, as a response to our APA petition. We've seen a little bit of a sneak peek, what we think might be in there, at least in, in, in regards to the tribal uh, sort of consultation area because last November during the Tribal Nations Summit that President Biden put on, they, they released some updated directives around tribal consultation for mining among other things. But that's just one part of it and it's an important piece, but they really need to increase environmental standards and um, you know, give more discretion to land managers to protect communities, special places, the environment. And, um, and so we hope that that interagency working group recommendations is the outcome of that is quickly turned into rulemaking regulations that we've called for in that APA petition that will really update up the bar, right? I mean, we look at the, the, the law, which has been on for 151 years, it's clear just based on how old it is, it's very difficult to update. And part of that is that political power of the mining industry, but it's also because in my opinion, it's also because many people don't realize the impacts of mining because they don't see or hear about it very often, even though it is in it, the, the, the output of it is in virtually everything you touch, right? From your iPhone to your car, the public transit you may take to work, the appliances in your home. It's because the vast majority of mining occurs near indigenous communities, not near our cities and towns. A, a recent industry study said that Upwards of about 80 to 90% of minerals that are needed for things like EV batteries are within 35 miles of Native American reservations. So in order for real and positive mining reform to occur, communities across the country have to speak out loudly, have to partner with these indigenous communities who are being threatened, their, their lands and waters. And we have to make our voices stronger than the $22.6 million that high paid mining lobbyists receive. So that's why it's gonna be difficult to update the, the mining law, but the regulations that are moving forward through this interagency working group are a real opportunity to raise the bar, to show that we can both electrify and protect communities, and to show the rest of the world that we care about people and the environment and climate change at the same time. Well, I think we'll leave it there. That was a pretty strong ending. Um, Allie Henderson with the Center for Biological Diversity and Blaine Miller-McFeely with Earth Justice. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, that was a fair amount of bleak news for one episode, so we'll wrap up with something to smile about. The Dolores River in southwest Colorado is having a moment 
It is raging this spring, thanks to our very wet winter and the runoff that is starting to come. Folks are traveling from around the West to raft and paddle down the Dolores. It does not have enough water in it to raft every year. The last time it was navigable was all the way back in 2019. These good flows are coming at the right time. Legislation to protect the Dolores River Canyon is gaining momentum in Congress, and there is a new documentary out about the river. If you live in Colorado, that film tour is going on right now. Go to protectthedolores.org to see if that is coming to a theater near you. That's all for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please review us wherever you're listening right now. And feel free to reach out to us at podcast at westernpriorities.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. So go follow us on those platforms if you haven't already. Thanks again to Blaine and Allie for joining us. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. The Landscape.